0: Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. That's on page 758 of your church Bibles. It's also, uh, again, printed in your uh, service sheets just for your convenience. Uh, But Matthew chapter 3, uh, we'll be beginning in verse 1 and reading through uh, to the end of the chapter. As we continue our series in in Matthew's Gospel, we started off uh, in the Advent season looking at uh, the the birth of Christ Jesus. uh, And now Matthew turns to Uh, Jesus as as an adult, uh, and when he first comes onto the scene uh, as a grown man. So Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and this is God's word. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? whose sandals I am not worthy to, uh, to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. What if the queen decided to come round to your home for tea? Now, we know that would never happen, right? We would, we would all want to go to Buckingham Palace, and she knows we, she would, that we would rather go and see her. But let's pretend she wants to get in touch with, with uh, us commoners. And she decided to, to choose one person in the country to visit in their home. And you're the one she chose. What would you do? Would you say, Ah, oh, that's nice. I'll put the kettle on. And then you go and get out the the PGs and your your old chipped mug and, and when the, the, the queen arrives you put her in your sitting room among uh, stacks of day old newspapers. Absolutely not. We would never do that, would we? In fact the palace would never allow you to do that, would they? They would send one of the, Her Majesty's courtiers round in advance to, to tell you exactly how to prepare. And they would make sure that you uh, hoovered your floors and dusted your shelves, recycled the newspapers. That you got out your very best pieces of China, and if you don't have China, they'd probably help you find some, wouldn't they? You would want that too. You would want you to show your very best for the queen, wouldn't you? You'd clean, you'd clean more than you'd ever cleaned before. You'd probably go out and buy a new outfit. Even though the queen says she wants to know how the how we commoners live, none of us would really want the queen to know how we actually live, would we? we would put forth an effort. You see, we, we sort ourselves out for the, the people that we think are important, don't we? I, I knew a young man who, who had a young lady he was wanting to impress. So before she came around uh, for a visit, he spent six hours cleaning his flat. Now, this wasn't me. I, I won't tell you who it was to, to protect the guilty. But but he told me later when he was uh, cleaning out his refrigerator that he, he found a, a cucumber in the very bottom of the fridge. And it was still unopened. It was still in that, that tight plastic wrapping that it, it comes from, from the store in. And he said he remembered buying it about six months earlier and, and it had just turned into this, this uh, dark gelatinous ooze in this, in this sealed uh, wrapping. And Matthew says that's actually what our, our hearts are like. He says that's actually what the, the state of the hearts of the Jewish people in Jesus' day was like. So God, in his mercy, and as Matthew says, according to his plan of salvation, sent John to tell people to get ready for the king. He said the Messiah is coming. Get ready. That was the message of John the Baptist. uh, and That that was the message that that he he gave to people. And that's that's what Matthew recounts to us this morning. John's message to prepare for the king. And then the king turning up on the scene. So there's two points uh, for us, two things I'd like us to see. I thought I'd, I'd ease us into the new year and our new early start time. So, just two points today one, how we, how we prepare ourselves for Jesus, and two, how Jesus prepares us for himself. So, first of all, how we prepare ourselves for Jesus. Matthew uh, introduces us for the first time here to John the Baptist. Now, in, in Luke's Gospel, we're told that John was the, the cousin of Jesus. But Matthew highlights the fact here that he is actually the prophet of God sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And we see in the the first 12 verses here the the heart of John's ministry. John was a a bit of a strange guy, wasn't he? He was an outsider living out in the wilderness all alone. But his message spread like wildfire. People were pouring out of the surrounding cities to go to him and to, to hear the message that he had to proclaim. What was John Calling people to do well, we're we're told that here in in uh, in verse one and or verse two and verse six. He says in verse two, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And then verse six, what were they doing? Well, well, the people they they were coming, they were baptized by him in the river, and they were confessing their sins. And those are two simple verses, aren't they? But they represent a major turn in the history of God's people. See, the Jews of Jesus' day were were essentially taught. That they had to justify themselves before God. That they needed to uh, the, to, to make sacrifices for their sins. So if you if you sinned, there was a, a prescribed sacrifice that you would that you would go and make to, to try and make yourself right before God. You make yourself right before God by paying for your sins through this blood sacrifice. But those coming to God, or excuse me, those coming to John on the other hand were called to be their own accusers, weren't they? To openly admit to their sin before God. And this is actually a striking account for us today because we're so confused about what it means to be made right with a holy God. We tend to fall into two extremes in Western culture, the the spiritual but not religious and the religious but not spiritual. The spiritual but not religious are are where the the majority of people in a, a secular society like ours are, are. It's the person who says, I believe in something. I believe in a, a God of some kind, but I don't think he can, he can really be known. And I don't think he is he's that concerned with us. And so I we we just have to to do the best that we can. We need to show kindness to one another. And we not, need to try and help one another out. Maybe sometimes we think that, that things like like meditation help us to, to get in touch with with the kind of people God wanted us to be, if we just clear our minds and so forth. But spiritual, not religious, we believe in something, but we don't know what that thing is. And if you identify yourself as, as being in this category, then I'd, I'd suggest that, that actually you should be far more concerned and disturbed by the not knowing. That, that uncertainty should, should, really, should really nag at you that having a God that made you but doesn't care about anything about you is really not a God at all. It should bother you. And if you think there's something or, or someone out there and, and they don't care, that, that should trouble you. Now the second person, the, the religious but not spiritual, are, are kind of like the Jews in Jesus' day. It's a self-justification approach. The person says that, that uh, I have some problems but I can, I can fix them myself. I can, I can justify myself by doing certain things that are good. You know, this is why we do New Year's resolutions every year, isn't it? We're trying to, to just make ourselves uh, a bit better each year. But we think if we do things like helping the poor, going to church, or just trying to do a good deed for someone, the idea is that you can, can uh, you know, offset the bad things with the goods. It's, it's kind of like buying carbon offsets, isn't it? You know if you, if you have an event that you want to be green, but you can't really be green, then you, you buy carbon offsets where you pay a company to, that does things like plant trees that well usually die after six months. I'm not, I'm not being just cynical that you can look that up on the internet. But, but that's essentially what the Jews and the, in, in their religious leaders were doing. They were, they were buying sin offsets. They were trying to justify themselves before God by obeying rules that, uh, and, and making sacrifices for their sins. The heart of the problem, though, with with both of these views is essentially the same, that that neither side actually thinks that evil is as bad as it really is. Neither side believes that their sin needs dealing with. And both think that they can sort it themselves. That's why John's coming was such a dramatic event in Israel. Because John brought a message that had been lost in 2,000 years of the history of God's people See, the sacrifices were actually meant to point them to the very person that John was pointing them to. And God in his mercy sends John the Baptist to, to proclaim that message once again with clarity. So John comes onto the scene and, and he presents the third way, doesn't he? That it's actually, our, that our, our sins are, are actually far deeper and greater than anything we could possibly believe. That you and I are far worse off than we might think. But that the, the great God of all creation has taken an interest in us. That he isn't distant at all, but that he actually he, he cares for us. He set his love upon us, and that he's going to, to make us right with him. So how does John uh, tell us to prepare for Jesus? I want to briefly see three ways to prepare, one, and one warning that he gives First of all, he says that we, we need to confess and repent of our sins. That's what the, the people were doing. They were coming out to John, weren't they? And that's what he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees they need to do in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You probably noticed the, the rather fiery message that John John gives to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we see Jesus actually interacting with them quite a lot in similar ways. The Pharisees were, were what we would call Uh, the legalists they were the ones who thought they could justify themselves by keeping the rules the Sadducees on the other hand were the moral relativists they had essentially uh, they were essentially the ones saying that that we aren't that bad and God is understanding of our weaknesses and John doesn't mince words with these two groups of people does he he calls them to repentance just as the the general population of people were, were coming to John to repent of their sins I think on this point it's really important for us to understand what the Bible means by repentance. Often people think of repentance as a, a mental acknowledgement of their sin or as a, a, an emotional sorrow over their sin. And both of those things are, are part of repentance. But the Scriptures actually uh, takes those two ideas and adds to them something else. It adds to them a, a, an actual change of life a turning away from our old way of living it's a change of course it's a, it's a redirection in other words, uh, John and Jesus don't think it's better to ask forgiveness than permission you know that saying that, that we often say or, or that actually I often say uh, you know, I'm doing this thing that I know is wrong but I, I just, I, if I just say sorry later it's going to be fine See, true repentance is actually costly. It's not just an easy way out. It's not just feeling bad about something or acknowledging it. But it's actually turning from it. It's costly. It's hard. Not just because we have to admit that we're wrong, but because we have to turn from it to Christ Jesus. That's what John means when he talks about repentance. And that's the first thing he tells people to do, to prepare themselves for the Messiah. The second thing John says is is actually we need cleansing from our sins. This is why he came baptizing people who were repenting of their sins. And baptism points to the the washing away of our sins by God. It's a a psalm and it's a one-time act. I'm not going to to go into the details on on, uh, our baptismal practices in this church right now. You uh, You can join us for our evening service starting next week where we'll be looking at uh, what it means to to be a, a, a church of Christ, essentially. So for now, I, I think it's sufficient to simply say that, that the baptism of John pointed to Jesus. He was coming to cleanse his people from their sins. And baptism today still points to that. It still points to a, a cleansing. But baptism in itself doesn't doesn't take away our sins only Jesus can do that but when we come before God repenting of our sins baptism is, is actually an appropriate sign of being part of God's people because it's an outward sign of what God has done for us and being part of God's family means that, that actually our, our children are included in that as well that we, we baptize the children of believers because we believe that, that God loves our children as well but that's, that's the key part of baptism. The, the washing away of our sins is, is something that God does for us. It's not something that we do for him. And that's why, that's why repentance has to come first. So the third thing that, that, that John says is that we actually need the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? Look at verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now what does John mean by Jesus baptizing us with with the Holy Spirit and fire? He's he's saying that the work of Christ is is an inward work, that that the Holy Spirit is the one who who works in our hearts. He's at work in the hearts of believers, those who are repentant, to make us more and more like Jesus. He says all believers require that. In a real sense, we're, we see the, the personal nature of salvation here, don't we? That God works in individuals like, like you and I. That, he is, uh, uh, that he's personal. I think this should actually be one of the most striking aspects of John's message. One of the most challenging aspects. In a, in a world where we mostly want to keep God at arm's length. Which is what we mean by, by spiritual but not religious, isn't it? We want to keep God at arm's length. We're saying we, we want God to be out there Somewhere, but unknowable because if we can't know him then we, we don't have to be accountable to him it's also what we mean by being religious but not spiritual it does the same thing I can cleanse myself, I don't need God to draw near to me but John here says that's exactly what we need we need God to draw near to us he doesn't say it's painless either, does he? He says the Holy Spirit comes to, to cleanse or, or to baptize us, and he, he adds fire to, to point to the refining aspect of the, the work of the Holy Spirit, burning away the impurity of our lives. It's, it's a painful process, and it's a long process. It, it lasts our whole lives. But that's the push and the pull of the gospel message. We may be fearful or, or even offended by the idea that we need cleansing but we should be drawn to the fact that God takes the initiative to come near to us. That he wants us to, to enter into relationship, that he wants to enter into relationship with us, his His creatures. That's what we should really long for ourselves, to be drawn into that relationship with God. In fact, John warns us against being too offended by the idea of needing His cleansing, God's cleansing work, doesn't he? Remember, he's talking to the spiritual big shots of his day, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these men who are the, uh, uh, the, the, the teachers and leaders in the synagogue. And he gives them and us this warning in verse 12, where he gives us this, this picture of gathering the wheat, that is the, the good crop, the useful bits, and burning the chaff, that's the, the wasteful bits. We heard the, the psalmist talking about this as well. John's warning us here that that the Messiah will bring grace and peace. But he's also going to bring judgment for those who reject him. That's a hard message for the the religious or the the spiritual because it says to us that we can't be neutral when it comes to the Messiah. You can accept him or you can reject him, but there's no in between. And What it says to the the spiritual and the religious is that that these things that we're doing that we think add some value add nothing to our faith or our help or our relationship to God it's like the chaff that's, that's blown about by the wind that ultimately gets burned now who is this Messiah that's the real question that, that should have been in the minds in our minds, we, we already know the answer don't we, but, but it would have been in the minds of the people that, that John was speaking to who, who is this Messiah and then we meet him don't we John and Matthew uh, introduces him to us here. First by, by John laying out all these heavy truths, that, but then he says in verse 11, Owen, oh, I'm not the guy. I'm not the one who can, can do these things for you. I'm not the, the one who can cleanse you or, or, or give you the Holy Spirit. That's not, that's not who I am. You need, you need someone else. And that's the person we see in the second point this morning. How Jesus prepares us for himself. Let's let's meet this Messiah. Let's look again at verses 13 through 17 but just just to refresh our memories. It says this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, "I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me?" But Jesus answered him, "Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But Jesus is surprising here, isn't he? Shocking even for John. This is our, our first glimpse of the adult Jesus in Matthew's gospel. The Messiah, who we've been waiting on, up up until now he was he was this child that was uh, on the run, really. Now he comes onto the scene as a, as a grown man, and what's the first thing that he does? Well, he gets baptized. And John, of course, is confused and he's even uh, resistant. He's he's been telling people that that Jesus would be the great baptizer, but then we meet him and he's he's being a baptizee. Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, it's because he's He's not the Savior any of us expected. He's a Savior who humbly enters into our world and our darkness. And what he he does here is he goes goes fully in. He plunges in with his baptism. You see, baptism doesn't only point to to a washing and a cleansing, but it also points to, to death and resurrection. And So in his insisting on being baptized, Jesus, the one who who doesn't sin, the one who doesn't need cleansing, points to the whole purpose of his work and the whole reason for his coming, to humble himself, to enter into our sin and misery and to suffer the death that we deserve. And his first appearance is this, this first introduction at the, at the start of his three-year public ministry. Jesus reveals to us everything we need to know about him. That he is the righteous son of God. He's willing to humble himself and enter into our mess. That he will fulfill all righteousness. That he will meet the requirements of the law and settle the debt of our sins through his death and resurrection. And Jesus' calling to you and I is to let him do his work. To draw near to him as our Savior and our God through faith and repentance, to take his sign and seal through baptism, and to allow him to do his work in our hearts. Jesus here says that that's what he came to do, to bring us near to God when we were when we were far off through our sin. That should strike us, shouldn't it? But what should really strike us is is actually the conclusion of our passage this morning. Because here we see the the power of Christ's work in the the heart of God the Father towards sinners like you and I. Here we learn that Jesus is is glorious and pleasing in the sight of God the Father. After he's baptized, the the glory of heaven is, is opened. And we hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And in these words we hear the love of God not only for his son but but also for us. The work of Christ, the work he was preparing the, the work he was preparing to, to do, his death and his resurrection for sinners, is is pleasing to God the Father. It's pleasing to the Father because He actually delights to save sinners like you and I. That's incredible, isn't it? That's the wonder and mystery of the gospel. See, we often think of, of God the Father as, as this angry ogre, right? That, that has to be satisfied by, by, by the blood of Christ Jesus. And, but, but it's satisfying his righteousness. This is where we see the real beauty and wonder of the gospel and the, the greatness of the work of Jesus. In these few words, we hear the very heart of God towards sinners like us. That it was the pleasure of God for his Son to come into our world, to humble himself, to take on our flesh, and to give himself for us as a payment for our sins. That's what we hear in the words of God the Father to Jesus' His Son. That Jesus didn't, take this in, didn't simply take this initiative himself. That he, was, that he was sent. And he wasn't sent grudgingly, but he was sent because God the Father knew that there was no greater way to, to, to reveal his glory than to bring his people in rebellion against him back to himself. To bring you and I near to him, even at the cost of the blood of his son. So Matthew's message to us this morning is that if we, if we look to the Savior, if we follow him, if we come to him honestly confessing and repenting of our sins, that he offers us cleansing from our sins and a relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit. And he can offer us that because of the the work he's completed on on the cross. You see, the wonder of the gospel is that in Christ, the words that, that God the Father speaks of Jesus actually get applied to us as well. In Christ, God says of us, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that is the beauty and wonder of the work of Christ. And that is the greatness of the gospel. Let us pray.